Hey, Father's Day is right around the corner. Dara and I are off recording some future podcasts, so we thought we'd replay the Father's Day special that we recorded last year. Hello, and welcome to Thrive, a podcast that gives you strategies and inspiration to help you live your best life. Learn from us, two cancer survivors, as we show you how we don't just survive, but thrive. Hi, I'm Garth Callahan, the Napkin Notes Dad. I'm a five-time cancer survivor, More importantly, I write notes and stick them into my daughter's lunch every day, which I've been doing since kindergarten. And I'm Dara Kurtz, author of Crush Cancer and creator of CrazyPerfectLife.com. Welcome to our show. Dara, you are always so good about that. By the way, I'm author of Napkin Notes. I'm so bad about that. Well, Garth, we have such a great show today. This is one that we've been wanting to do for a while, and you wanted to wait until... Uh, like around Father's Day to release it. This is, you're right. When we sat down a long time ago and wrote out all of the ideas we had for podcast titles, this was one that we both really kind of talked about and felt was important. And because of the timing, I really felt like we couldn't get it done in time for Mother's Day, but Father's Day was definitely doable. Um, and you know what, that's kind of like how kids treat Mother's Day and Father's Day too. Mother's Day is, they get so prepped up and the schools help and they write out cards and doilies and whatnot. And Father's Day is always after school lets out and the dads get nothing. So here we are giving the dads something. So today we're going to talk about how to tell your kids that you were diagnosed with cancer. And when Garth and I were each diagnosed with cancer, we were both really age 42. Is that, I was 42 and I think you were as well. My first time was 42, yeah. And my kids were 11 and 14. And how old was Emma? I believe she was around that age. I I think Emma just had turned 12. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So today we're gonna share with you our personal experiences of how we told our kids about our diagnosis and some things that we learned from going through that that we hope will help you if you have news to deliver to your kids. And you know, I think what's interesting, I don't I don't know this story from Dara. Or or if she has told me this story, I honestly don't remember it. And I think that we have enough different personalities that we probably took very different approaches to how we sat down with our kids and said that we have cancer. Yeah. So let's get started. Garth, tell us a little bit about your experience. Well, so um, just to clarify, I've had the um, dubious honor of telling Emma this five times now. And you would think that each time would get a little bit easier or we would get more used to those words. And I can honestly say it doesn't. You know, I, I just told Emma again a few months ago that I I probably have cancer again. And we, it was awful. You know, she's 18. We kind of, I, I would have kind of thought that at this point we would have had this process down. And I go into her bedroom and, and I say, hey, you know, I, I had a bad scan. And I start telling her what that means. And within seconds, she's crying and I'm crying and we're shifting positions and we're uncomfortable and we're like laying on the floor, staring at the ceiling and we're trying not to look at each other. And then we're hugging and, and it was just as difficult as that first time seven years ago. And so, you know, seven years ago, I, I didn't even know if Emma knew what cancer was. 
I mean, she was a, she was a, a young kid. I think she was in sixth grade. Um, and so I, I came at it from a very analytical standpoint and both Emma and I have very similar personalities. We both appreciate math and science and the analytical side of things. So the first thing I did was I asked her if she knew what cancer was because I didn't know. And I had this whole list of things of cells growing uncontrollably and blah, 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 and, you know, medical terminology. And it turns out that that was all bunk. Um, you know, she knew what cancer was. She didn't necessarily understand the dynamics of, of what happens with a cancer diagnosis, but she knew that it was bad. Had she had a friend or did she know anyone that had experienced cancer personally? Not really. We have, you know, there's nobody in my immediate family during Emma's lifetime that has had cancer. Um, you know, we see commercials on TV and, and I'm sure that she's had some type of experience watching some Disney show with a parent that had cancer or something, but she hadn't had any firsthand experience and, and none of her friends had either to the best of my knowledge. Um, and you know, the, the first thing I told her after we kind of got through that, that really scared part of the conversation was, Hey, look, you know, I, I've got a good medical team. We're scheduling surgery. We're going to cut it out and it's, that's probably going to be it. But you know, what I didn't know is that my words didn't matter at that point. Yeah. I, you know, telling her I was going to be okay did not actually resonate with her at all. And I kind of thought as I was going through the next few weeks and getting ready for surgery and then post-surgery, I thought that, that um, Emma was handling it pretty well. And it turns out that Emma and Lisa were just really good at hiding it from me because they didn't want to be an extra burden. And they were terrified and and really not dealing with it well at all. So they would hole up in Emma's room and cry together and hug on one another. And, and I was kind of oblivious to the fact that that was going on. When did you figure that out? Or when did they tell you that that was how they were reacting? It, it was, it was a few weeks after surgery. So, and that whole process, you know, I found out in early November that I had cancer. My surgery wasn't until days before Christmas. And then my recovery lasted through January easily. So it wasn't until then that I kind of recognized that maybe they were hiding something from me. And part of that was, you know, school started and um, I was back into my normal habit of writing notes to, to Emma and sticking them into her lunch. And a few weeks after school had resumed for that semester, I saw her ripping a note up and, you know, when I saw that, my first thought was, man, how bad was my note today? Right. I mean, I, I couldn't even imagine how badly my note was received that she was ripping it up. And so I kind of walked over to her gingerly and I said, Hey honey, what's going on? And she, she looked at me and she looked at the note and then she, she put it together what I was thinking and she said, oh, no, no, dad, you don't understand. And she showed me this notebook. And in that notebook was a collection of the notes I had written to her that year so far. 
And so it was only a handful, but she had ripped off the quotes and had been taping them into this notebook so that she could save a part of me in case I died. Ugh, I just want to start crying right now. So what do you do when you see your daughter tearing up notes because she's wanting to keep everything that you gave her because she's afraid you're going to pass away? And did you have any idea she was feeling that way? I had no idea. Um, I, like I said, Lisa and Emma were really good about hiding Emma's fears from me. And, um, you know, to be honest, I don't even remember if she visited me much in the hospital. Um, I, I was, I was under some strong painkillers for that first day after surgery. So I don't remember much at all from that day anyway, but I know that, um, you know, Lisa was concerned about her seeing me in that state. You know, when I came home, everybody just tried to be normal. And that was hard for me because I didn't feel normal at all. There is definitely a new normal within a household that whether or not you want it to happen or not, that, that kids have to adapt to because you're going through something that's really hard and then they can feel it in the household. They can feel that, you know, something's going on, that you're, you're struggling with something or that you're going through something. So whether or not we like it or not, kids are seeing firsthand changes in their lives and in their household. I, I remember being so concerned after that time uh, and seeing her, her rip up the notes um, that I went to the school counselors and said, Hey, you know, I need you to understand that this is what our family's going through. And I don't know that Emma's being forthright with us or at least with me. And so can you please pay attention? And if she has, you know, if she, if she has some behavioral changes or if, she, if she's having trouble in school, please help her, but also let us know so that we can do what we can to help her. And it was tough. I mean, we, there was just all sorts of accommodations that we had to do. And I feel like for the first few months, we were all walking on eggshells with each other, not because of the health situation per se, but because we didn't want to push somebody to the point of them breaking down uncontrollably. And because they, because then you'd all, you would all be in that place and maybe you just weren't ready to go there with everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, and I mean, it was, you know, I, like I said, I've had to do this five times with them now. And every time we just get into this crying fit, you know, this last time, and, and this is, this is a, a, a tip for any, any parent, or frankly, anybody that has to have a conversation with a loved one about cancer, you know, after things kind of settled down with that conversation, Emma turned to me and she said, Hey, can we go see Black Panther? And what was telling for me is that that movie had come out probably six or seven weeks before that conversation. And Emma and I always go see superhero movies together. And I think that because of her life, and especially with softball season starting when when it did, that she kind of pushed that to the back burner. And then she realized, oh crap, I haven't done this one thing that I always do with my dad. And I need to rectify that situation. So my piece of advice is if you are the cancer patient or if you are a caregiver, you should live your life so that you don't have 
that oh crap moment when somebody says I have cancer, right? So um, I didn't change anything about my day-to-day -day habits after my fifth diagnosis. And that's because I'm living the life that I'm supposed to be living. Um, I mean, I, I will admit I continue to make improvements as I can, but you know, I, I didn't make any wholesale changes because I already was in the place where I needed to be. I love that because of what you've been through in your past, you already live your best life. You already live a life that reflects what's important to you. I think that's what you're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I only had to go through that once, um, or with one child. Uh, and again, there were, there were some analytical things. I, I will say after the second time, and my second diagnosis was prostate cancer. And so I had the pleasure of talking to my daughter about what prostates are. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, yay! I know. Yay. I mean, I, I'm thinking, oh God, can I talk about anything else? Religion, sex, politics? No, we've got to talk about my prostate. Um, you know, after I had that conversation with her, and it was a little bit easier in that we weren't going to treat it and I wasn't in immediate danger. Um, it was just something we really had to pay attention to. But, you know, she turned to me and she said, you know, dad, you, you deserve to be done with this. And yeah, I absolutely did. I, I got it. Um, and, I, and I did deserve that. Um, but, you know, I, I, I also can't imagine what it would be like to have to sit down with my two daughters and say, I have breast cancer. Um, I, I can't imagine that. And, and I'm going to grab a tissue because whenever I hear a story like this, it really chokes me up. So I apologize ahead of time. So, you know, at the time my kids were 11 and 14 and I was great in great health. I was feeling good. And, um, you know, my diagnosis, just like what happens to most people came out of nowhere. And so I was collecting different test results and John and I wanted to wait until we had just all of the facts. I wanted to know exactly the big picture of everything before we sat down and talked to my daughters. So it ended up being a Friday afternoon when we had a clear picture of everything. And so we waited until 3.30 on Fridays. My kids at that time, they would be home from school around 3.30. So we waited until they got home. And you, at that time, it was very unusual for John and I to both be home on a Friday at 3.30. Typically, John didn't come home on Friday afternoons at 3.30. So they came home and they, you know, they were kind of like, why is dad home? And we said, you know what, grab a snack and let's go into the den. We want to talk to you. And so we got a snack. And as we were walking into the den, literally Zoe turns to us and she says, does someone have cancer? And John and I were just kind of like, what? And she said, one of you has cancer. And Instead of me kind of like non-emotionally talking to her, I just immediately burst. I just started crying. I mean, so all the plans of the way that I thought we were going to sit down and calmly and rationally talk to them about this just sort of kind of went out the door when she immediately said, 
one of you has cancer. And they thought it was John. They thought John had cancer. And I said, no, it's not daddy. It's me. And they were like, what? It's you? Um, Because, you know, at the time I was really health, just a lot more health focused than John was. Um, And so I was crying and they were crying and we went into the den and we sat down and, you know, we said, okay, this is what's going on. Um, and we just kind of told them, and I was really lucky. I mean, I, I did find it really early and, but I was going to have to go through surgery and chemo and radiation and all that stuff. And so we just kind of were very upfront with them and they had two parents in their class at school that had been down this path. And unfortunately, one of them, actually both of them had passed away. And so in their minds, cancer was cancer equals death sentence. And so there was kind of a level of distrust with regards to, um, you know, me saying I'm going to be okay. And then, and they were saying, Oh yeah. Okay. Because the people that we knew that had cancer aren't here anymore. Um, and so we, we really struggled with that throughout the journey. Um, but one thing that we did immediately is we had one of my doctors come to the house and, She came to the house wearing her white jacket and we went outside. This wasn't that day. This was um, like a week later. And we said to the girls, okay, you can ask her anything you want to ask her and I'm going to leave the room and you can ask her all of the questions that maybe you're afraid to ask me. And she's going to tell you the honest truth because she's a really good doctor and a doctor wouldn't lie to their patient. And so I feel like that really helped my daughters. You know, I always say don't ever underestimate the power of a person wearing a white jacket, but it's really true, Um, especially when you're 11 and 14. So I think that was something that, that really helped my daughters. Another thing is that I immediately called the guidance counselor and said, you know, this is what we have going on. And it was around summertime. I mean, summer was starting, um, about a month or a couple months later, but it ended up right when I started chemo is kind of when sort of summer was about to start. And that guidance counselor came to the house, picked up my daughter, Avi, and took her out for coffee throughout the summer just to kind of check in with her and make sure she was okay. And, and, you know, really just kind of see how she was feeling, but it was very rough. I mean, it's, it's a hard thing to watch your parent go through. And I wasn't someone that sailed through chemo. It was really difficult for me. And so, um, my kids watched me struggle with losing my hair and, and that was probably one of the lowest points for me. And, and I would like, I would, when my hair started to fall out, it was just such an emotional time for me. I was trying to, you know, really get through it myself and then trying to take care of their emotional health at the same time. It was, it was really challenging. And there were times when I probably could have done a better job, but I was just doing the best that I could. Um, I'll never forget one time I was in the hospital because I was just so sick throwing up. I ended up being in the hospital for a couple nights and they came to the hospital to visit me. And so there I am, this bald, skinny woman walking around with, um, you know how you walk around with the IV, the pole And I'm walking around and my little, and and Avi, she's 11. She's holding my hand, walking through the hall with me. And I'm thinking, okay, how did my family get here? How did we get to this place where 
I'm walking around bald, skinny, holding an IV, and my little 11-year-old daughter is holding my hand, and it just broke my heart. I had so much guilt at what my daughters had to see, what they had to go through, Um, and I, I really still struggle with it. I mean, there are times when I still feel that I wish that they hadn't had to see some of what they saw at the the ages that they were. It it is so hard as a parent to, um, I mean, you, you feel like, um, that you're burdening your children with your health. You are burdening your children with your health. And, and and it is so, you know, you think, gosh, I'm, I'm supposed to be the person who shelters this child. I'm supposed to be the person who shepherds this child. I'm supposed to be this person who protects this child. And it it gets topsy-turvy, right? Everything gets topsy-turvy as you're going through treatment, especially. And suddenly your child is the one who is taking care of you sometimes. It's not something that I think anyone would ever wish for their kids to have to go through. But you can stay in that space and feel guilty, or you can choose to say, okay, this is what happened. And, you know, my kids are going to be a lot more empathetic and a lot more caring when um, something happens to someone that they care about, or if they have a friend that has a parent that that is diagnosed with cancer. And I've seen that, you know, unfortunately, cancer is not something that isn't a common common diagnosis. And so since my diagnosis, my kids have had several friends who have had parents diagnosed with any, with different types of cancer. And they're always the first to pick up the phone and go visit that person or take that and go out, go out to get a coffee with that person and tell them, okay, you're going to get through it. This is what you need to do. And so those are all good things that came from it. And I'm sure you could say the same about Emma. Well, and I think one of the um, one of the other things that comes out of this is that you are emulating behavior that you want to instill in your children. So you you might act a little bit stronger than what you actually are. Um, and I know that for me, this kind of spirit of not quitting not giving up. I'm going to be steadfast in my decisions. I'm going to fight this. I'm going to do whatever I can to basically to not die, that your child sees this sense of strength. And, you know, I I hope that maybe at some point when Emma has a tough decision to make, that she, she can look back on how I behaved and what I did to remain steadfast and persevere, that she would be able to do something in a similar manner. You have showed her and I know that she's been watching and I can't imagine that she isn't going to take all of those lessons and carry that throughout her life. One thing that was really hard for me is that my mom passed away when I, two weeks after I had Zoe. So Zoe is 18. And so my mom passed away when I, 18 years ago. And so when I was getting my cancer diagnosis, I was just sobbing because I was just thinking, okay, I know how hard it is to live in a world without your mom. And I can't, I can't do that to my kids. I can't have that exact same pattern happen to my daughters. And so that was especially heart wrenching for me is just that fear that, okay, I've really struggled with my mom's death 
And, you know, for me, dying is not an option because I don't want them at 11 and 14 to have to go through that. Um, it was, that was just incredibly challenging for me to kind of make peace with and to, you know, to kind of settle in and remember that my diagnosis wasn't my mom's diagnosis and that this story wasn't my mom's story. And, you know, all of the feelings that came from those thoughts. You know, I, and I felt in a very similarly in that, um, the, the rational side of me said, okay, if, if I die today, then I think that Lisa will, Lisa, my wife will, um, of course, after an appropriate mourning period, right? She would be able to, as a grown up, she'd be able to, to move on. She'd be able to take care of herself and she would be able to, to continue life in, in a way that is good for her. And you would want that for her. I mean, oh, of absolutely. course, of course. Yeah. Um, but, but I, I kept going back to Emma yeah. who wasn't even a teenager yet and had um, really what I would consider to be the, the, the most fundamental years ahead of her in terms of becoming the person that she's going to become. And, and how do you get through those years without um, a strong father presence or a strong mother presence, right? How do you do it with just one parent? And, and we know, we know that that's tougher and it, it makes it even harder when your parent has died. And I just, I, I, it broke my heart thinking about how Emma would have to grow up differently. And uh, I mean, to be honest, that's one of the reasons why I still take daily chemo. I mean, that, that is absolutely not fun. I would love to give it up, but, um, you know, one of my goals was getting Emma through high school graduation. And I was, I was just going to say that Garth. So when I first met you at the coffee shop, if you don't know that story, please go back to one of our previous episodes because it's out there. But one of the things you told me was that, you know, you wanted to, your goal was to write napkin notes to Emma in her lunch and see her through high school graduation. And so Emma is actually graduating from high school this month and you did it. You did it's, it. It's so weird. It's it, so awesome. It, 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 it's one of those things that um, now that I'm here, yeah, I don't know what to do. Like? I don't know what to do with myself. I mean, there's, it's like, oh, graduation is next week. Celebrate and, hard is what you do. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Um, I've been squeezing lime. So we have lots of margarita mix ready. <laughs> um, I just, it, I, there's a part of me who, who I look at these notes. Um, and for those of you who, who don't know, um, after my third cancer diagnosis, I really freaked out and I wrote out all of the notes that I needed from then until high school graduation, just in case I died. So how many was, do you know how many, I, I, I know you I, know. Yeah, it was 826 notes. And so I wrote out those notes over the course of uh, a couple of months and they've been in this box ever since. Now I do get those notes out every once in a while, but, um, I, and the geek side of me actually went in and alphabetized the notes recently. Um, I, and Dar's shaking her head at me. Oh my gosh. Why? <laughs> well, just in case I needed to pull one out and I, I would okay. know where it was. Okay. Of course. Um, and so this box has really been sitting in my office now for a, a, a number of years. And it, I mean, to be honest at this point, it doesn't matter anymore. I, I mean, I'm here. We made You're graduation. I wrote my last napkin note to Emma a few days ago, and I almost want to ditch the box. It's yeah. the past. You know what would be so awesome? Like, 
I mean, I'm visualizing this whole release kind of scenario with the box. But then at the same time, I feel like a lot of people in the world would feel really lucky to be sent one of those napkins. So I don't know. We, we got to think about it, Garth. We're not there yet. So no Viking funeral for the no, napkin box? I, I, I mean, <laughs> initially, yes. But then I'm thinking, I don't know. I got to think about that. But graduation from college is in four years, my friend. That's your next goal. I know. I have, I have a friend of mine. I have a friend who, um, when I commented about the whole issue with trying to understand where, where I fit in the napkin notes scenario again, he said, you know, my goal is to get Emma to graduate college and then go for her master's and then maybe go for another master's and a doctorate and then another doctorate so that she's in this perpetual education mode for the next 10 or so years, um, knowing that that would encourage me to continue to write notes and to to take my daily chemo and kind of get through to that point where maybe I'm writing notes for grandkids. I think your your the your love of life is so strong that you're going to take that daily chemo because you want to be here for your family, but also because you want to be here you want to be here to enjoy every single moment that every day brings to you and all of the joy and happiness that that you can that you can experience. Well, and I actually think that that's a topic for another podcast because I, I, yes, I wholeheartedly agree with you, but just because I have that joy doesn't mean that occasionally I don't think about quitting. Well, who, what, who doesn't think about quitting? I mean, we all have hard moments, especially someone who is going through cancer. You are entitled to have your hard moments. You are entitled to have your hard days and to have those thoughts where you think I can't do this or when I look at my kids, the guilt is just too deep or the pain, the pain is really, really something that you struggle with. But after you have those moments, you, you know, you, you move forward, you press on because there's a lot of joy and happiness that you deserve to experience. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, um, so I know this has been a really heavy heavy podcast episode. And, and we knew that going for going into it, we, we knew that Father's Day was going to be something, this topic was going to be a tough one for us to talk about. So I, I'm going to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk about how you can not be the bad dad. So um, I, Dar, Dar's looking at me quizzically and she's like, where is Garth going with this? So, I just never know <laughs> where we're going. <laughs> um, I, uh, so, you know, we are still relatively new to podcasting and we are working our way into some, some different areas. And one of these areas are sponsorships. And so if you are a dad or a mom or the person in charge of your family pictures, Right, so I always use bad dad because it rhymes. It's it's easy, right? It's cliche. Um, don't be the bad dad. And the way that you can be the good dad is to use Backblaze. And Backblaze is an online backup service. It is $5 a month or $50 a year. And it automatically backs up all of your computer data. Most importantly, it backs up your pictures. Because, you know, to be honest, if your Bon Jovi album from 1987, you know, is lost because your computer crashes, you're probably not going to be too concerned about it. But if your 
pictures of your family growing up are lost because your computer crashes, that is something that you'll never get back. And the way that you can support the Thrive Podcast, especially if you don't have a backup service, you can go to nap napkinnotesdad.com slash backup and you will be able to sign up for a free 15-day trial for Backblaze. It's a service I use myself. In fact, I've even used their recovery service because all computers crash at some point. So again, Backblaze is something that is uh, I, I believe in and I, and I wholeheartedly endorse. You can go to napkinnotesdad.com slash backup and try it for free for 15 days. We'll also put that link in the show notes. So you can easily go to the show notes on the podcast and click as well. So that might be easier. You know, one thing I wanted to say, I love that we're doing this podcast now and we're bringing it out around Father's Day because one thing, when I was diagnosed and I was going through all that I went through, my dad and my stepmother came to my house every other week during my whole entire journey. And they basically came in and took over my house and, and took care of my kids, drove them around, um, you know, tried to normalize life as best that we could. But, um, you know, I'll never forget that generosity that they that they did for me. And I'm sure that and, and I've written about this a lot. I was not a breath of sunshine when I was going when I was going. <laughs> you through. weren't a delight. <laughs> I was not a delight. In fact, um, you know, my dad coined this phrase. He was like, Dara, you are so emotionally inefficient. Um, and because I would just frustrate him so much. And so I write a lot about that, but he started saying, you really need to be emotionally efficient and focus on all the good and all the things that you can do to help yourself. And, um, I'm not going to go there today, but I just love that we're bringing this out around father's day because dad, if you're listening, you know how much I appreciate all that you have done for me in my life and for being there for me when I really needed you. Yeah. And, and, and I couldn't say, I, I, I couldn't say more about why I'm excited about doing this for Father's Day because um, one of my missions and, and the reason why I'm so public about writing notes to my child and sticking them into her lunch is that my goal has always been to encourage dads to do the same thing. And uh, especially young kids, if you get into that habit, it really takes a minute out of your morning. And I don't think that you can comprehend how much influence you have with a sentence or two on this little disposable piece of paper and how much your kids are actually going to look forward to receiving that. And as you go through the, the, the kindergarten years and go up through middle school and high school, my daughter, think about this, even today gets napkin notes and there's no sense of embarrassment and her friends try to peek and see what her, her dad has written to her that day. And that's pretty cool. It's very cool. Okay, I have a question for you. So. I know that you wrote the napkin note and put it in a lunch, but did you pack the lunch also or did Lisa pack the lunch? So um, that's a great question. Back when Emma was in kindergarten, um, Lisa and I kind of did it just whoever was available. And right around second grade, Lisa started working part time at Emma's school. Right? She was volunteering so much there that the principal said, hey, you know, do you, do you want a job? Nice. Um, it was it was pretty cool. And plus, we get the added bonus of parent eyes in the school. And so Lisa and Emma were often going out at the same time to go to the school together. And so at that point, I actually became the primary lunch maker. Okay. 
And so I was the primary lunch maker right up until probably three or four years ago. And, you know, when I started taking daily chemo, getting up that extra half an hour or 45 minutes earlier just became really hard. So at that point, Lisa kind of shifted again and she started to take over whenever she had the time and I would only make lunch as a backup. But I still always got up and wrote the note myself. And, you know, even if you don't have kids, you can write a note to your spouse or your significant other and you can put that note in their lunch bag or their briefcase. Or I think it's just such a lovely way to tell someone that you care about them and to have that person be at school or at their desk or at their office or wherever and just be in the middle of their day and then read a lovely note from someone letting them know that they care. You know, I I even take that a step further. I think if you're a manager, there is nothing better than walking into your, your place of work and finding a three by five card with an appreciation note written on it, kind of stuck in your keyboard. Um, because, you know, honestly, if you say, th- hey, you know, hey, Bob, thanks for that great PowerPoint you, you created for us um, and you send it via email. Well, how many emails do you get while you're at work? You're you're bombarded and it, you might not even see it. OK, so Garth can see me, but I have this little card, exactly what you were just talking about. And so my husband wrote this for me and, um, it just says, I'm very proud of you. And I love you so much, Jay. My husband's name is John. And so like he wrote this to me and recently I was traveling and speaking somewhere and I was a little bit nervous just because the size of the audience was larger than I had done in a while. And he put that in my suitcase. And so when I was unpacking my suitcase, I had that note. And so I just, it's kind of exactly what we're talking about. And so I saved the note and I brought it home and now it's sitting here on, in my desk. And so every once in a while, like if I'm feeling insecure, which we all have moments when we feel insecure, you know, maybe I'll just glance at it and it'll remind me that, you know what, I can do it, whatever it is I'm working on or whatever it is I'm working towards. It's just a good reminder. So I love that. And I, I get the same thing every once in a while while I'm traveling or, you know, sometimes somebody mails one to me. I really appreciate those notes. I remember one time I was going away for speaking and I, I can't remember remember exactly what the event was, but it was I was excited about it. And Lisa, both Lisa and Emma wrote napkin notes and stuck them into my luggage. Emma's was really sweet and kind. And Lisa's was a little more on the sarcastic side. And she was like, hey, Garth, you know, I, I know you have Irishman syndrome and you don't know how to tell a short story, but why don't you try? <laughs> <laughs> but the whole point, I mean, the whole point is it's just so fun to get a note from someone on paper or a napkin because nowadays with text and, you know, emails and all that stuff, we don't save a lot of the things that people say to us. There is something really tangible yeah. about having yeah. that piece of paper and being able to hold it. Yeah. And and I've saved every note, every card, every letter that I've gotten. Um, you know, I, I was just purging a bunch of things in my home office and found some um, note cards that I received back in like 1993 from my manager telling me about the great job I was doing. And you know what? I threw out so much stuff. But those cards went right back to where I found them because I'm going to hold on to them. 
you know what I found recently? I found I have a box of letters that my mother wrote to me when I went to sleepaway camp and, and I have not read them yet. And it's going to be such a glimpse of what it was like through her eyes as an adult, but I haven't read them yet. That's going to be another podcast. I, you know, I, re- I really want to read. I'm ready to read them. I mean, after Dar- eight, 18 years, I'm ready to read them. Dara, you and I, I so I think <laughs> that we have such different personalities, but it, it, there are so many ways that we are incredibly alike. When um, I did a radio interview a long time ago at a lo- for a local radio station where I grew up, my mom happened to catch it. And I just kind of, I, during the interview, I, I said one thing. And for me, it was kind of like a throwaway statement. And it was basically, yeah, you know, I don't have anything written to me from my dad. And the reason is not that my dad was unloving, but because anytime something came from my parents, it was always written by my mom. And my mom heard that and she knew that somewhere in the house was a letter that my dad had written to my sister and I when we were kids. And she had she had it somewhere and she scoured her house finally found it, copied it. She didn't send me the original because she wanted to hold on to the original herself. Uh, She copied it and mailed it to me. And the moment that I pulled it out of the mailbox, I knew what it was. I mean, I could tell immediately that it was going to be a letter from my dad and I wasn't ready. Have you read it? I have at this point read it, but it sat on my desk for probably a year or two before I was emotionally able to open that letter up and read what it was. Um, and funny thing is, he wrote it to me when I was probably, I'm going to guess, 10 or 11. So in a really similar age that, you know, I was I was just this little, you know, snot-nosed kid, basically. Right. Oh, well, that's another episode. I love it. Okay, I'm going to share the thrived, the thriving tip for today, which, I mean, I feel like we've given you so many little nuggets, but a thriving tip for those listeners who are new to the Thrive podcast is a little bit of advice or a little nugget of wisdom that you can carry with you. And so since this podcast is all about telling your kids or sharing hard news with your kids, the advice today is to meet your kids where they are. And what that means is share the information with your kids based on the age that they are in terms of what they're able to receive. And so what that means is when my kids were 11 and 14, I wanted to share information with them that was something that I felt like an 11-year-old and a 14-year-old could handle. At the same time, always remember that our kids are smart. And they are very, very savvy regarding technology and they know how to Google. And so if you're talking to your kids, especially about cancer, you need to recognize that they're probably going to leave the room after you talk to them. They're going to go to their bedrooms. They're going to shut the door and they're going to start Googling away. And so you really need to be aware of that. And I really believe that it's important to be honest with your kids, to never lie to them because trust is something that's very, very important. And I always wanted my daughters to know that we were going to be open and honest with them and that we were always going to tell them the truth regarding what I was facing. And so just keep that in mind when you share whatever your news is, just be open and honest, but take into account the ages of your kids, realizing that they're going to Google whatever's out there. And so you need to you need to keep that in mind when you're talking to them. 
I, I love that. And, and I really, I love the meet your kids where they are. And I think that advice goes to um, your spouse and other caregivers as well, because everybody's kind of in a different place. And it, it is very helpful to not bring them to your place, right? You, you because they're going to be struggling with with the news as in a way that is probably unknown to you. And meeting them where they are is so important. And everybody is going to be going through receiving that news in a different manner. You know, it, it, it's it's interesting now. I, I I'm not sure how John would react, but you know, I know that. You know, when Lisa and I get bad news from my doctor, we're kind of we're, we're kind of nonplussed at the news. We're kind of like, okay, what do we have to do, right? We we immediately go into that mode of, all right, how do we how do we attack? What are what are the next steps? Um, you know, Lisa commented to me recently that she was handling things okay because I was, and to be honest. I thought to myself, oh crap, I'm I'm really hiding this well because there's parts of me that's not handling this well. And I just kind of want to quit a little bit. But by her saying that, it made me understand where she was coming from and that she was looking to me for guidance and she was looking to me for strength. And positive energy breeds positive energy. So, I mean, if you're both, and you're certainly entitled to have those hard moments and those those crying moments and go go down that path. Of course, you're entitled to that. But I love how at the end of the day, you both turn to each other and you're like, okay, how are we going to solve this problem? And yeah. that's and, and, that's amazing, actually. Well, and so that brings me to our quote of the week. So um, the quote of the week, whenever I give the quote, is always something that I have written on a napkin at one point in time or another. And this is something I think goes for everybody who are in situations that are tough. It doesn't have to be cancer. And the quote is, don't quit when you get tired. Learn to rest. Oh, I and love that. <laughs> oh, I love it. Right? Because, you know, everybody talks about, oh, don't quit, don't give up. But but they don't really think about or they don't give that follow up on how do you not quit? And, and really, the key is learn to rest. And that rest can come through so many different ways, whether it's true physical rest or maybe letting your family do something for you that you normally wouldn't do um, or or you know, frankly, letting your neighbors, you know, letting your neighbors cook meals for you or something to that effect, you know, learn that it's okay to rest so that you can gear up enough and recoup some energy so that you don't quit. And a big part of that is giving yourself permission to rest. Oh, Dara, she's, she's eyeing me because she knows that I don't do that well. Hmm. Another, another episode. That's right. Well, so, um, I am Garth Callahan. You can best find me at napkinnotesdad.com. And um, I really appreciate the time and you listening today. I hope that this Father's Day episode can bring some nuggets into your lives that are useful. And, um, you know, on that note, if there is something that you would like to ask us and maybe have us turn that into a podcast show, you can go to napkinnotesdad.com slash podcast Q. And we will receive questions there. And hopefully uh, your question will be will turn into a podcast episode. And if it does, we will send you a very fine token of our appreciation. Again, I'm Garth Callahan, the Napkin Notes Dad. And I'm Dara Kurtz. You can find me at crazyperfectlife.com. We are so glad that you were with us today. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. 
Thrive is created by Dara Kurtz of Crazy Perfect Life and Garth Callahan, the Napkin Notes Dad, with the hope that we help you develop motivation and inspiration to make your life remarkable. It would mean so much to us if you shared this with your friends and family and left us a review on iTunes. Remember, you deserve to thrive. Thrive Podcast is copyrighted by Dara and Garth.